0: ladies and gentlemen boys and girls transport tactics is back for a fourth episode would you believe it we've made it to number four today we are talking about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the airline industry and transport tactics the podcast as always is hosted by myself andre and
1: me sparks
2: yeah myself james
0: Today, the fourth episode is a very special one, because for the first time in the history of Transport Tactics, the podcast, we have a special guest. Uh, The guest today is Jamie Ward. Um, He's a transport planner at an engineering consultancy, and we are very excited to have him on this podcast. Hello.
3: Hi. Yeah, I'm Jamie. I'm honoured to be your first ever guest. It's very cool. Um, Yeah, I'm a transport planner and kind of general transport and aviation nerd, self-confessed. So, um, yeah, it should be a really cool discussion.
0: Very exciting. Yeah, we thought that for this episode, we need some backup when it comes to talking <laughs> about all things aviation.
1: Yeah, we're a bit train and cycling centric, I would say. I would care to admit yeah, a bit. That's
3: fair. Yeah, I also do like cycling, especially. Uh, yeah, I can uh, definitely talk about planes.
0: Everyone likes a bit of cycling.
1: Yeah, I also like planes quite a bit as well. It's just it I didn't get as into them as trains and cycling as would. Well.
0: So before we get uh, <laughs> into the content of the episode, uh, let's just get uh, one piece of trivia out of the way first, since uh, this is the first time we are on the topic of aeroplanes. What is everyone's favourite aeroplane?
1: I'm going to choose a very normal one. Um, I like the A380, the big one, I like the big one.
0: Classic choice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also like, uh, what is it, I don't know whether it's the A350, but it's like... So oh, you can't pick more than one. <laughs> no. But the A380 is going to be decommissioned soon, it's not going to be renewed. It's hard because, well, I like the A380 because it's huge. But the A three fifty, I like it because it's comfortable. Uh, so what about you? James Lynch? Lin- yeah, Lynch. James Lynch.
2: I mean, I'm going to answer based on uh, planes that I've seen. I've spent far more time in my life seeing and looking at planes than travelling on them. I-, I love planes that go really fast. So, you know, planes like the Concorde come to mind.
1: Ooh. And
2: not necessarily all passenger planes like jet fighters and stuff that go well above 1,000 miles an hour they're pretty incredible when you see them you might not see them for very long blink and you miss them but yeah they're really really incredible machines so yeah i'd, I'd say the faster the better I'd say.
1: Ooh, zoom zoom <laughs>
2: and what about you jamie yeah
3: i'd say in terms of in terms of playing that is just like really cool definitely concord has got to be up there just because it's you know great feat of engineering but it was like it was awful in terms of a plane that was actually kind of usable and viable for mass transit so i'd say in terms of a plane i'd actually like to go on maybe like the boeing 787 dreamliner sort of state of the art oh the Dreamliner. yeah i think that's a competitor of the a350 so they're kind of similar but yeah that's state of the art um sleek efficient
0: Are they high-efficiency, long-distance?
3: Yeah. So, yeah, long-haul aircraft, but smaller than the A380, so they can be more efficient.
1: I've been in the Dreamliner. It is... The technology is amazing. They don't have common blinds that go up and down, like plastic sheets. They have a button that just... And if you... They have a switch, like a button, and you press it, depending on two buttons, and you press it, and it changes the what is it the screens light light emission so you keep pressing it just blacks out completely and when it's to take off a landing it automatically goes to clear so so the stewardesses don't have to tell us to open and close the binds i recall that's
0: cool that, re- that gets rid of that hassle yeah i'm gonna go last here and i was also going to say the concord but well, that's clearly been um all taken up and uh Picked apart and there's nothing left there for me, so I'm gonna have to go for a different one. And I think this is a this is a bit of a rogue choice. This isn't even a passenger aircraft. It's a it's a freight aircraft, and it is the Airbus A three hundred six hundred ST Beluga. I didn't know all those numbers. i was just looking at Wikipedia there. Um, <laughs> it's a really massive uh, mm-hmm. and f- funny looking freight aircraft. Um, and, and I don't know. I had this big airplane book when I was little and and this was in it Um, and it always stood out to me just because of the funny design it just looks kind of cute and it's got a funny name.
3: Isn't that Uh, a plane that carries planes or at least parts of planes?
0: I mean it it looks like it could fit a little plane inside there yeah. I think
3: that they carry like wings and stuff.
1: Uh, Is that the one with the giant forehead? It does have an absolutely massive forehead. Oh yeah it carried all the parts for the A380 that's how big it is that's how significant it is. Very cool. it is truly amazing in terms of military planes i am really stumped like i like i can only think of two three four names uh like a hurricane f-15 spitfire come on no that's like that's the war i'm thinking about modern military uh, fair enough yeah hurricane tornado Um,
0: talking about the tornado that has swept through the uh, aircraft industry, the airline industry in the last year. Uh, Shall we turn to... Oh, I like that segue. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: and I wanted to start this discussion by um, going back a little bit to the state of the airline industry before COVID, so so we can really kind of trace it forward and have a bit of a timeline. Um, And I know, Jamie, that you did a dissertation at undergraduate level about aeroplanes and as, as far as I know this was kind of very much pre COVID um and UK focused. But I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little yeah, bit about yeah, what you found and, and what the yeah what the state of aviation maybe you know in the UK was pre COVID.
3: Yeah. So yeah, my dissertation it looked at both how aviation in the UK had grown and sort of where it was growing as well and how that connectivity had shifted particularly out of London to other UK airports um, between, what was the years I did, like 2000 and 2018. So right pre-COVID. So it would all be wrong now because COVID has like messed everything up. But um, yeah, the aviation industry in the UK was definitely booming. The the increase in passenger traffic from 2000 was like, quite unprecedented, I think, and it was um, especially for short-haul international travel, so flights to Europe, largely due to low-cost airlines such as Ryanair and EasyJet having a a deregulated environment to work in and making use of tiny little airports um, that were very cheap for them to have takeoff and landing slots at that have now become pretty big airports like Stansted and Luton. and especially in Europe as well, there's lots of airports that are grown just because of Ryanair. Um so yeah, I guess that was where at least I found a lot of the, the growth was. In um and it, you know, it allowed a lot more people to travel on planes. It wasn't such a such a upper class thing to do. It became a lot more affordable. I mean that's not to say that it is still, you know, very much a middle class activity. I think something like half the people in the UK don't fly at all in a year. So it's still, you know, very much uh, an uneven um, pastime, if you like, thing to do with your time. But it has become, you know, a lot more affordable than it used to be. But then, of course, COVID hit and it kind of fell off a cliff with, in terms of the people, number of people who could
1: travel and who wanted to travel. I, I remember witnessing the beginning of COVID, how the airport was completely empty. Like this was like, it was, this was, this was without government intervention. This was like, people were like starting to be afraid earlier as January of COVID. Like the airports were noticeably emptier compared to uh, uh, earlier, earlier in the summer. And it was amazing like just going back and yeah i think aviation is very fragile yeah uh, yeah that well that's that's also due to bad bad capitalism because they're like they don't save or it's all about paying shareholders maximum profits so they don't have anything prepared you can especially see that in america where airlines had to be bailed out despite record profits the year before they had nothing to set, they had no money saved or allocated.
0: Talking about economics. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I understand that a lot of airlines, especially not the lower-cost airlines, a lot of traditional airlines operate on the model where they generate the bulk of their um, income from flight tickets on the select few kind of business and first-class travellers. Oh, yes. Um, and... Of course, as we know with with COVID, uh, business trips uh, basically came to a standstill and Mm -hmm. uh, in in terms of future projections, um, business trips are also predicted to uh, bounce back at a slower rate than our leisure trips, you know, Mm -hmm. partly because, you know, people are now more used to remote working, flexible working. and that's that's really taking away the the main profit generator for a lot of these airlines. Yeah. So, what's what's the solution, and do the these airlines have to change their model of, um, you know, class, you know, sorting tickets by class? Should that system should
2: that system be changed? I personally think mm. they may have to change the way they operate their services. So, for example, as you say correctly, um. Business travel is going to be growing at a far slower rate than leisure travel. Less people will be, or far less people will be travelling in. You know, on on the. I and I actually think this is going to affect traditional airlines who go long distances more than budget airlines, because far less people are going to be travelling on these long distance business trips in in the high in the higher class. Uh, so, in uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not too familiar with um the how it works on airlines, but. You know, going up from economy, where all the business people are in the higher class uh, accommodation, with on, on the planes, it's gonna be far less people there, and therefore far less work. Meaning, I reckon they'll be mm. generating far more income from uh, economy, maybe from premium economy as well. So, in terms of how they operate yeah. with their staff, they might be relied upon to get more money from the lower classes uh, than than the more F than the more the the ones designed for more affluent people. So I think they'll have to change the way they operate their services and perhaps invest more money in the different classes to what they used to before COVID hit.
0: Do you think that would mean the average ticket price would have to go up?
2: I mean, I'm not sure how it really works, but I would think so
1: because yeah, the ticket price because if you're
2: up. yeah, because if you're if you're sort of yeah, I. Relying on if if demand goes up, then the price will go up, and I think it's it's far more likely that demand will increase at a faster rate for the for the lower class uh, accommodation of which there are more seats. So yeah, the average ticket price will rise.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's inevitable. Yeah, I remember during the pandemic, tickets to like just going from. From here in, in England to where I come from, it used to be as cheap as 400, 450 if you book it correctly, or on average 600 if you just book it willy nilly. But, but during the pandemic, I saw tickets going nearly £3,000 and they weren't even direct you had to stop over.
2: I think it's partly to discourage people from traveling, you know, during a lockdown. I think it was just partly to just make the prospect of traveling even less attractive than it had already been advertised. It was
1: literally just two airlines that were offering this service. All the other airlines completely cut. Yeah,
3: I think that's, it almost has to get more expensive because I think aviation is just going to shrink compared to what it was. So there'll be less airlines. They'll be offering fewer routes. Um, and, you know, fewer frequencies on that route really, because it's just not viable to have the number of seats that they used to. It's, they can't sell them. And, yeah, in that respect, I think flying will get pricier. And there's also an argument maybe that's not such a bad thing if particularly looking at it from, like, an environmental perspective of, you know, should we be flying as much as we did pre-pandemic? Yeah.
2: Do you feel, do you feel passenger numbers... Do you feel it will it will never return to normal on all airlines, or will it just be the big airline? I think budget airlines would probably be okay, mainly because very few business business travellers use them, and they're generally used for fairly short distance holidays, which a lot of people I think will be will be going on now, as opposed to countries that you know are quite far away and are still being hit really hard, like countries like Brazil and India. Yeah, this um, yeah,
1: this is really assuming
2: when you compare. Yeah, when you compare yeah. it to places like uh, that are fairly close to these shores, I reckon uh, airlines that operate those shorter distances might be okay. It's it's very tough to predict. Mm,
1: true.
3: Yeah, I think airlines like that. I was going to say yeah that the the low cost airlines that have sort of boomed in the last 20 years or so do seem to be quite resilient. I suppose I don't I don't know this for certain, but I don't think they were hit as much by like the 2008 crash, so they seem to be able to, to, you know, withhold these shocks to the aviation market. And whilst this is, you know, by far and away the biggest shock that aviation has ever had to deal with, I think, yeah, if any airline is going to come out of this, it will be those low-cost airlines that have, yeah, seem to have a really good
1: business model. Yeah, I really do agree with that. Like, I remember taking a really good low-cost airline like they do, they have they have all the basics for free. No infuriating extras that sh- that should be a given. That which airline was that? Uh, what's it? A A Air Asia X. Ah, okay. The X stands for extra long journey. It goes like it's it's a it's part of the A Asia group, but it's it mainly does flights to up to six hours.
0: So that they are a kind of low cost, but um, longer distance long longer haul airline it reminds me maybe of like norwegian airlines oh, yeah
1: oh yeah they're like norwegian i guess yeah but they're not but the but but their price would not be super low they're like they're like they aren't they're very they're undercutting enough to be considered a low cost but they're not super low cost they're like 200 300 pounds. For a six-hour okay. flight, both both oh, okay. ways, so return.
0: Yeah, not not like your ten-pound Ryanair. Right no, no, no.
1: From my experience with Air Asia, especially with Air Asia X, I would describe them as the most premium economy airline you could ever take because it has like it does it does a bit extra to make you feel happy taking that flight. Going back to recovering from the pandemic, I think budget airlines like those especially with routes to really important places because they, they are just long enough to go to really busy routes because there is a lot of traffic that Air Asia takes. They go from Asia to one part of Asia, such as Southeast Asia to Northeast Asia, where it's really popular. They also go from Southeast Asia's Muslim nations to Mecca as well, which is really popular line, that's going to recover really quick post-pandemic due to the need for tourism and people wanting to travel.
0: Yeah, I think as, as long as um, leisure demand and tourism uh, picks up, which I'm sure it will and pretty fast, um, then those airlines are going to be okay as long as they kind of keep on their toes and they capture the um, emerging markets, you know, where, where the demand is and they keep pace with which countries are being locked down, which countries are being opened up and kind of re- reschedule, replan what services they, they are able to um, try um, to deliver. Um, but I think in, in terms of the aeroplane stock, uh, if that's the right word for it, I don't think they would have to change it. Un- unlike some of the traditional carriers, as, as we said previously with the A380, for example, that kind of capacity and demand does not seem to be viable at the moment or... Um, in in the near future as well, I was I was looking somewhere at uh, kind of the the models that airlines use in terms of the services that they operate. For example, like a hub and spoke model, and I've I've read that uh, some airlines are kind of going or going away from a hub and spoke model in the context of COVID. And I wanted to ask Jamie if you kind of know anything about that or. Um, if, yeah, how that could be related to the pandemic.
3: I think this is a trend that actually comes from sort of pre-COVID, where where you have like aircraft such as the seven eight seven or the A three fifty, as we mentioned earlier, that are long distance but lower payload, so they carry less people. They are much more efficient to run between cities that don't have that higher demand, but still have you know enough to to fill a smaller aircraft. So you can go direct between those two cities rather than having to go from A to B to C via like a bigger hub, which is where, you know, in the hub and spoke model is where airlines would feed all their flights into one central hub in a big city. So like BA at Heathrow. And then from there, you'd disperse out again on other flights to, to wherever you actually wanted to go. So it kind of cuts out that, that middle stage. And yeah, I think low-cost airlines have certainly managed that as well. Ryanair doesn't use hubs because they're too expensive and instead chooses to run, you know, lots more flights between city pairs that are, you know, you wouldn't run with a big aircraft because you never fill it, but they've managed to make it viable. So, yeah, I don't know what will happen post-COVID, whether they will, yeah, I can see that trend continuing, I guess, in that maybe big cities will become less influential in terms of the aviation market. You won't necessarily have to go via these massive hubs anymore.
0: Yeah, at least in terms of business travel, I think. Isn't, would you say that Stansted is a, um, a bit of a hub airport for Ryanair, is that not a correct statement? I
3: suppose so, yeah, as in they run a lot of flights out of Stansted, but it's not like, with Ryanair you can't even buy connecting tickets you can only so you could you wouldn't necessarily go from somewhere to Stansted to somewhere else you're more likely to just go direct
2: or they I mean yeah they just (laughs) Ryanair are quite notorious for getting as much money out of you as possible so if you wanted to uh, make a journey which involved getting more than one plane uh, there's no such ticket from them as a as a ticket from A to B that uh, enables change over you'd have to book two, two separate flights um that's just, mm. that's just how...
3: And then if you miss your second flight, because yeah. their first one is late, then yeah, exactly. you have to pay for another one. Yeah, they, they,
2: they've got a bit of a reputation, but that, that, that rents for another day. Looking at the future, I think there's no doubt the main disadvantage of perhaps flying an aviation not returning to what it was, was the fact that so many jobs are at risk, which is a shame. Last year, British Airways announced 12,000 redundancies, which is really alarming. So, this is the main reason why... I I mean, I'm not really much of a flyer, to be honest. I've I've only flown with about four airlines in my life. It's never something that I've done on a regular basis. But the main reason as an outsider why I'm praying that um, aviation... Does return to a reasonable number, a uh, reasonable level of demand, is so that jobs can be protected. Um, it's it's so tough at the moment with what's going on. The economy's just gone to pieces. But um, as I'm think as I think we're going to discuss, I think perhaps the last year or last 13, 14 months of lack of flying has done the environment a few favours.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um and I think what, what you said there about redundancies also comes off the Some back of especially kind of tourism focused airlines going bust. You know, this usually happens in the kind of September season, doesn't it? And is did did Thomas yeah. Cook go in September twenty nineteen, just before COVID. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was before. Yeah, that was before COVID. And there yeah.
1: was Monarch not long before that. Yeah, there was a trend of like like it seemed like the bubble was bursting, but then COVID just like turned it up to 100 and just pushed a- everything that was going to go bust, bust. like it, it accelerated a process that would have happened anyway.
0: What's the current situation with the way that the um, UK government is kind of subsidizing airlines? and?
3: Yeah, I'm not really sure about that, but I thought it's quite interesting mm. that the talk of airport expansion more recently that's become kind of a kind of more the government don't seem as keen on it anymore so there was like Stansted had a planning application for expansion which was refused I think Leeds Bradford their expansion has been put on hold subject to review and Heathrow I mean you know who knows what's going to happen there <laughs> that debate's been going on decades already Oh, Heathrow. and it's like it's yeah it's interesting that perhaps Aviation isn't, you know, that viable, as we've said, there's airlines that collapsed pre-COVID, let alone with COVID on top, and maybe it's just not viable at that the kind of scale it was. It kind of got as big as it could get.
2: Yeah. And um... I personally can't see the third runway happening at Heathrow because it's partly because Boris Johnson, at heart, doesn't really want it to happen. I remember mm. him saying that if it was um, voted to go ahead, he'd lie in front of the bulldozers, uh, <laughs> causing all the demolitions and constructions.
0: Well, is is, is that because yeah. he was a big fan of the alternative Boris Island?
2: I mean, possibly, but he doesn't live too far from the area, and I don't think yeah. he... I mean, pre-COVID, I don't That's think he'd true. have been a fan of uh, an, ex- an increase in flights overhead. But I also think that with the economy being hit so hard... Uh, it's going to be so tough to recover such an inc- incredibly high deficit. I think a project like that could easily be put on hold, especially when you consider the low demand levels at the moment. And I think I think yeah. the aviation industry is quite a reactive one in the sense that certainly in this scenario, I think it's going to have to react to how the public uh, feel. and um, it's, it's all dependent on whether public... Because, I mean, when you look at other countries, are people going to want to go on holiday? because, uh, I mean, the UK uh, is looking pretty good at the moment in terms of, I mean, hopefully this June 21st date does come to fruition, but another, a number of other countries on mainland Europe, etc., are not really anywhere near the end of this compared to where we are. And also, uh, even, with, even once uh, the yeah. pandemic is behind most of the world, will COVID vaccines be compulsory? And if they are, will people... Uh, be be mm. be uh, willing enough to oblige to that rule. Uh, so there's so many different sort of factors to take into account regarding how the public and how demand is gonna, um, or whether it will increase. And I think that I think that the airlines will will be reacting to demand, and they'll obviously be doing as much as they can to get it back up again. But it's it depends on so there's so many people involved in this. Across loads of different countries in the world, and it's just so difficult to predict at the moment. But personally, regarding the third runway and different various different projects, are sort of ex- which are sort of there to expand. Yeah, aviation. I, I, I can't see many of them going ahead now. Yeah, I
1: could I could see that. Yeah. Personally, I find it ridiculous that London has so many airlines, so many airports. Sorry, like like there are bigger cities. And they only have like two airports, at most.
0: Well, it's because of the capacity of the airports, right? And also because of the fact that um, none of them seem to want to expand. Although, if you look at the arguments of, um, you know, Heathrow and Leeds Bradford, um, they all seem to be incredibly optimistic, and they're saying, no, it's fine. The demand's going to rise to you know pre-COVID levels very like very quickly, um, and and like we. The the expansion is still
2: justified. Yep. I, th- I suppose that's mainly because those particular airports, without wanting to sound sort of f- uh, yeah. inferior towards those cities, I feel like less business people would use those airports compared to. Well, not
0: not Heathrow. Air- I'm also also no, but the ones about. you were
2: talking about, Bradford, uh, the ones in the one the ones further away from London. I feel like less business people would use those airports. Yeah, that is true. The I think most of them would be would be leisure travellers who they're anticipating will come back as we've said, whereas airports near London. You might see a similar number of people overall because there are a lot of people in London, but I think when you're when you're measuring it in correlation to the amount of people that are in these cities, you might have the same amount of people using London airports as well as Bradford and Nottingham East Midlands and all of them. but the amount of people who aren't travelling will be far greater in the London region compared to the north. Uh, because I'd say there are more business people, maybe not living in London, but certainly based down there a lot of the time, who would use London mm. airports. So I think, I think it's going to be um, those airports you were mentioning there who seem pretty confident. I think that is my personal prediction. Is that is probably going to be mainly true. Yeah, but mm. London will have I to. Don't know if on, I
3: can see uh, like the big, massive capital investment that would be required for say a third runway. When you know, there's the question of. Should we be flying as much? I don't know, just to throw in a bit of a a curveball here about the competition between aviation and high-speed rail and whether actually is high-speed rail a better thing to be investing that kind of money in and um, shifting especially kind of shorter flights. So, you know, domestic flights in the UK, really there is no need to take a domestic flight in the UK. The country is not big enough. Um, and even short haul flights to Europe are yep. quite easily doable by mm. train, especially if there's further investment in high speed rail.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd say absolutely. Uh, it's much more. It's much better to invest in high speed rail. I mean, I'll give you this example: Arsenal Football Club a few years ago were playing Norwich away from home. Arsenal is obviously in North London and they decided to fly to Norwich, it was less than half an hour, I think, or about half an mm. hour flight. And these are the sort of flights that are just <laughs> silly really. And I think absolutely it's worth it's definitely the long term investment should be in high speed rail. I think the main as I've said, the main concern would be the fact that there'd be so many job losses and it just seems horribly unfair on a number of employees within the aviation industry. But if you're thinking in the grand scheme of things mm. with yeah. climate change, uh and the, and the and the economic implications of maintaining the investment in aviation, I'd certainly say it, is a compromise, it doesn't yeah. seem worth it, and it seems a far better idea, both economically and ethically, to invest in electric high-speed rail services. Uh,
1: that is so true. I get, like, whether it... It doesn't matter which government, like, is in charge, whether they're the one who commissioned it or finish the infrastructure project, airline, railway, anything, there always seems to be some sort of like whenever they do anything there seems to always be trouble at the beginning or middle of the project anything covid high-speed rail and they only seem to do good when it's nearly done as you can see with covid like i, I could imagine the same thing with high-speed rail, hs2 and everything but it seems like the gov, the gov- any government seems to have always have this ability to make everything overpriced, complicated unnecessarily. Like I saw HS2 and I'm like thinking, why did they have to create a new company? Why did they have to do this and these all these extra steps to to like they had to they started a company from scratch to create a new high-speed rail line. They could have easily found a company that that has done this in the past and just hired them to do it for us and pay and pay for them to do it for us but no they had to hire their own ceo create a new hs2 corporation and it's the same with covid and everything and aviation they just make things complicated and it's like it's really concerning but well it's just weird to be honest
0: oh. I I think some of the I think one of the reasons that these meg projects always end up like hitting some kind of crisis is because they they take so long, you know, these are usually 10-15 year things, 20 year things, and there's bound to be something and you know it, it, HS2 looking at its implementation lifespan the next 10-15 years there's probably bound to be another crisis of one form or another that, that might push things back even further Oh, absolutely! and i was going to bring yeah. up this <laughs> you, <rail>. well, <laughs> it's, it's <exactly>. really bad <laughs> i was going to bring bring up uh, this example so uh so i was happy that you mentioned high-speed trains um earlier this month france brought in a ban on uh, domestic flights in instances where the trip can be completed by train within two and a half hours Hmm um and I think that's a very interesting kind of example to follow. Um well, you could say that fine, France has a much more fleshed out high-speed rail network. They have the TGV going mm. almost everywhere. Um but it's it's still uh it still shows that high-speed rail is a viable alternative and that something like that could be could be brought over
2: here. Yeah, but what the so one thing I do want to say is okay, it might obviously if you're Taking a train from London to Glasgow, it takes about four and a half hours. If you're on a plane, uh, from when you take off to when you land, it's probably not much more than an hour. It might not even be an hour. It might be less. I'm not sure. But the, what what I'd say to that is, how long, do, how much time is there between when you first arrive at the airport and when yeah. you take off? Oh, it must yeah, be it about two hours. On. If you if you factor yeah. if you factor in turning up at the start the the airport you leave from. If you're if that is if this is how you're measuring it, you turn up at the airport and then you leave the other mm-hmm. airport that you arrive at. I'd say the di- I'd say the difference is yeah. minimal. With a train, you turn up about half an hour before the train's scheduled to leave. You board the train, you're away, uh, provided there's no delays or anything, of course. And then you arrive mm-hmm. at your destination, put your ticket through the barrier, and you're out. I think that's what people see. measured uh, measure like sort of make the contrast based purely on the journeys I think if you take all of that into account you'd find that you're, you're losing very little time uh, by taking the alternative uh, rail route and when you think how small the UK is relatively mm-hmm. to countries like France um, most of mainland Europe there's, just, it's, there's no excuse uh, for, for using such a, uh, a vehicle uh, that's so dependent on on you know, carbon well, one excuse world,
0: people could enough. use yeah, is absolutely. that um, domestic air uh, flight tickets could sometimes be cheaper than. Uh,
2: yeah, it's train the cost.
3: Ticket. I think that's a real problem.
2: But but I I, I think that I think that if we're sort of to follow the example that France, all that needs to be factored in by the government, and I think the government needs to work with the corporations, and perhaps the corporations can work with each other. It would be nice. What I was thinking was going back to what I was saying about employees. Maybe if if there was sort some sort of agreement. You know, maybe a train operating company rel- who would I- inevitably gain more passengers if if we followed France with that with the ban they've introduced. If they are gaining more passengers, they'll need more staff, and perhaps there could be some agreement where they take on the staff from the airline and keep them in, in work. You know, you know, it, I think if we if if we sort of form alliances and and come to agreements and compromises on these things, that can all be sorted out. But I think in the great in the greatest scheme of things, I think. Ticket prices is is a fairly minor issue, in my personal
3: opinion. I also think, um, yeah, domestic flights are too cheap and they should be taxed, basically, to make them unviable. And um, yeah, I think that's, especially with like in the context of climate change, we have to fly less realistically. And that's something that's quite feasible to cut because there are other options in taking the train. And it's all it takes is for extra taxes to be put on flying and and ideally making train travel cheaper as well and then the
1: the shift would happen i'm just thinking is there anything fundamentally happening with airplanes themselves that could make them much more better for the environment like fuel alternatives or the way they're built or just general efficiency like is there any, like, because there, there are some scenarios where you have to take an airplane.
3: I think compared to, say, like the electric car is becoming, you know, a lot more commonplace now. In terms of electric planes, they're just like way off and are really not very realistic. And there's a lot of, um, I guess, hypes about technological fixes normally, because that's kind of the ideal for, you know, if you're a politician, just to say oh we don't have to make people fly less we'll just you know invent planes that don't emit any carbon emissions but they don't exist yet and uh, a way off you know ever realistically happening yeah so i And think just
2: so one thing to add just to add quickly sorry we've already got electric trains we don't have to wait for them they're all yeah here. yeah we don't have to wait for them that's fundamentally like yeah unless you
1: can get Unless you can get batteries to be efficient enough, you can't really see planes, plus they suffer from weight issues. the batteries
3: Yes, yeah, the batteries they can't get anywhere near the range that they currently can with jet
1: fuel. yeah, because of the heavy and I weight think like, as well
3: yeah, because of how heavy they are. and like flying is the the most carbon intensive thing you can do with your time.
1: yeah, and <laughs> I don't
3: think that's going to change anytime soon, and um yeah, for that reason yeah in the context of emissions there has to be a reduction in in the amount that's flying also just thinking about like leisure travel I guess you guys all into trains I see you've heard of like is it man in seat 61 61? seat 61.com he like gives um, advice on how to travel by train for holidays and like how the train journey itself can be really enjoyable mm. and actually like part of your holiday. Yeah. So it's, your, you know, the, the journey as well as the destination. Oh, yes. And actually, if you want to go on holiday to France, you can, or Spain or Italy or wherever, you can take the train instead of flying. And I
2: saw you something, Eurostar have suffered incredibly badly throughout COVID. Just like, it, no worse, no better. I mean, they're no better off than any airline at the moment in terms of how how, how much they're struggling. And I've always had a soft spot for Eurostar, you know, I used to work for them and it was an honour to do so. And I think that, you know, they're a fantastic example. And certainly, I'll say this, this is something that I know as a fact, the amount of hassle there is with checking in passports and all that is far less at Eurostar than it is for any airline. And I think, um, you know, as you say, Jamie, I think, with, I mean, with certainly from my experience, if you're travelling on an aeroplane and you look out the window, all you see is clouds and the sky, you know? When you're on a train, this—I mean, this is a fairly minor factor—but when you're on a train, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to see. You know, it's part of the experience. It's a journey that you can enjoy. You know, some people would sit on a train all day just to, you know, see what they could find, all the all the scenery that you could see. You don't get that experience on a plane, do you? So I think, I think if if this sort of there's so many different facets to this um pot- potential change in or shift in culture I mean we were talking about this last week as well with culture changes that I think this is another example of where we need one and I think um you know there there are so many cases to be made of made of you know alternatives to flying but this would still maintain uh the wealth or not the wealth but the contribution of tourism to the economy uh and as we've said the main the main, uh, sort of. Stumbling block is is the fact that so many people would be in trouble uh, in terms of their employing employment status because there's so many people who not only work for airlines but really enjoy working for them. It's quite a unique job to have, be part of cabin crew or or uh, as a pilot or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, a lot of the times um, people have these jobs for life, don't they? You know, you, you see. Yeah. You see pilots, uh, you see these videos on YouTube where the pilot's like, okay, this is, I'm, you know, 67 now and this is my last flight and it's a privilege to have you all on board and everyone starts flying
2: yeah. it. I think that that would be the main thing. But I think what needs to be done to sort of solve that issue is I think there needs to be pr- sort of unified negotiations and, and sort of work to be done regarding you know, the the progression of not just aviation but all sort of transport um, service providers. And I think that people working on aviation whose jobs are at risk, um, they're the ones who will be required by the passengers who want to travel domestically. There'll be plenty of domestic holidays this year, I reckon. You know, people have been desperate to go to the beach or whatever, even if it isn't in England, which isn't the warmest country (laughs) in the world. But people will want to travel again and it might not passenger numbers might not be the same as they were in aviation but i think overall the amount of traveling will that will be done will reach pre-pandemic levels maybe not straight away but in, in give it a year or so i think i think it will happen um it might not necessarily be through flying but i think something can be done uh to sort out the issue of redundancies and all that and I mean, some airlines Some airlines will go bust. It will happen.
0: Yeah, I think it will definitely get to that level, um, especially leisure. Um, I, I, I agree, I agree. I have to say that we are running up to the end in terms of time for the podcast. Um, but I think, as you said, it's a very good note to end on that uh, if you are planning to go on holiday this summer, think about it from, uh, well taking a bit of an academic lens and mm, thinking about yes, it as yes, uh, yes. a an, an effective experiential dimension of uh, the, the the travel itself um, and, and thinking about uh, how how you can make that journey enjoyable and uh, going on the train, looking at the scenery pass you by, um, having a big table in front of you, a nice comfy seat. Is, more leg room. Is, 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 yeah, exactly. More leg room is... I think everyone would agree is miles better than being stuffed into a little Ryanair EasyJet economy seat. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it is special to go on a train because, like, I remember seeing, like, the people who worked on the platform salute the train as they leave each station. Yeah, that's, like, a really unique thing where I come from. We do it like that. Like...
3: Also, when you, when you get off the train, you're like in your destination straight away like especially i always use the example of edinburgh is something i really remember when i went there getting off the train you come out the station and like you can see edinburgh castle just right there you're right in the city center and you don't just don't get that experience when you're on a plane you end up in some soulless airport and you still got you know you got to get on a bus or a train or whatever to actually get to your destination
2: and yeah i think i think we all agree but as we've said the main The main cost would be the fact that people would be uh, relieved relieved of their duties, but as I've said, I think there can be something done there. I mean, when Thomas Cook went bust, uh, the company I work for, the rail company, took on uh, two or three Thomas Cook employees, Mm -hmm. or former Thomas Cook employees. Ultimately, all transport companies are all running the same service, and it's an extremely popular and Mm -hmm. important one, and I think if they were all able to work together with the airlines to provide... The work that's necessary and uh, not just for for the employees but also for yeah. the passengers i think that i think that we can solve the issue with the needs- not too many people uh ending up unemployed it needs to be like
1: some sort of integration and some sort of like regulation and like laws that make it easier for airlines to work together to compete and just to make mo- and just to be responsible and make money like do everything that they can to work properly And currently, airlines, train companies can't do that with current regulations. Like, if they want to build a new station, they can't because they don't own it.
0: So I think we can summarize by saying that, you know, COVID has presented a lot of challenges, but also by highlighting a lot of the issues, I think it's uh, perhaps presented some new opportunities um, and also shown us the ways in which we can make things better showing us that international travel on holidays, you know, by airplane isn't necessary. And as a bit of a silver lining, hopefully push this all towards a more sustainable way of uh, living, which would hopefully be beneficial when it comes to tackling climate change. Um, But I think r- wrapping things up, I have to thank Jamie for coming on to the podcast today. It was very nice to have you.
3: Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was good fun. It's great.
0: And, uh, I'm sure later on if this podcast survives for a while, you're welcome back to hop on (laughs) another episode.
1: (laughs) Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Yes, reoccurring guests, (laughs) reoccurring guests. That'll be our thing.
0: Next week, our topic is, well, we don't know yet.
3: (laughs) 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 To be concerned.
0: But uh, it will be probably about a different mode of transport. And as always, it will be exciting, strategic and...
1: Tactical. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it going to be fun, Andre?
0: Of course it will. It will be fun, and as you say, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah.
1: So before we go, how many like trans mode of transports have we gone through? I've remember train, well, in, bicycle.
0: I would say three. Oh, three. We covered yeah.
2: rail
1: twice. What, what do you think's left?
0: Well, literally everything. <laughs> Cars, trams
2: helicopters.
1: Yeah, there's, there's still lots to talk about, don't worry. Scooters. Oh, scooters. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> one. Segways. They stopped making segways, didn't they?
0: I'm, I'm quite disappointed about that. I wanted to buy one. So, thank you, everyone, yet again for tuning in to another episode of Transport Tactics, the podcast. Please put that little heart on it on Spotify and share to your Aviation Enthusiast Friends, yes, we will all see you very soon once again, Um, this has been Transport Tactics, goodbye everyone,
1: yes, goodbye,
0: bye, see ya,
1: see ya.